This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. A program for and about America's 78 million baby boomers. Here's your host, Freddie Bell. Hi, everyone. I'm Freddie Bell. Today on the show, we welcome a pair of authors who conducted a study revealing just how much people of color are negatively impacted by COVID-19. We welcome Libel Sternbach, and we share today's words to the wise. Our show for this first weekend in December is underway. There's new research out right now from the University of Minnesota showing that black, Hispanic, and Asian populations are significantly more likely to die of COVID-19, and this is regardless of their vaccination status at the population level. Joining us right now are J.P. Leiter, the director of the director of the Center for Public Health Systems in the Public Schools, and an author in this study, and also Elizabeth Wrigley Field. She is also a lead author and professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota. Why is this happening, and uh, why is it that people of color are more likely to die? Good morning. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Well, what we've seen is that during this period, both in the pre-vaccination period and after vaccines were available, that when when there were vaccines, uh, people of color were getting vaccinated at higher rates, but were also dying at higher rates. And so what what we are seeing is that that's backward. Um, so something else is going on. Uh, and even during the pre-vaccine period, um, communities of color were dying at higher rates, 4.7 times higher than white Minnesotans. Um, and even in the vaccine period, uh, that was twice as high in the midlife range. So uh, about 45, ages 45 and higher. Uh, Elizabeth, anything you might want to add there? Yeah. So one thing we know is that vaccination is really protective. It protects people against dying of COVID really well. And so you might expect to see that if a population is more vaccinated, that's the population where fewer people are going to die. And what we think it means that so many more people of color are dying in spite of having gone out and gotten vaccinated and done what, you know, what they were told to do, what we've all tried to do to stay safe, um, is that all of the other things that are making people more at risk, um, being more exposed to COVID at their jobs, um, having less good access to health care, all of those things still really matter. And so to us, it's shining a spotlight on all of the COVID risks. Um, and and all the ways that we might want to prevent them that aren't just about vaccines. So are you both saying that people of color, especially black people, are dying and getting ill from COVID because of ex- uh, simply because of exposure and the types of jobs in which we're employed? We think it's probably a lot of things. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that differences in exposure have a huge role to play in why black people especially and people of color, but Hispanic people also have been so much more likely to get COVID and to become sick from COVID. Um, and workplaces have played, it seems like, a special role in that. Um, it's where people mix together in circumstances that are not under their own control for a big part of their day. And so that puts you at a lot of risk of a respiratory virus. Um, so that's one reason why we ha- have had a kind of emphasis on workplaces when we talk about this. 
But, you know, what our research is showing is just the enormity of this. At those key midlife ages, um, people who are not quite elderly but um, still at risk of COVID, um, even in the Omicron period, black people are twice as likely to die of COVID as white people are. That's a huge difference. So with the free vaccines that are out there right now, clinics everywhere, pop-up clinics, hospitals, doctors, offices, what is it uh, that we can do as a society to help protect these people from uh, from COVID? I would say that at, at the individual level, it is still to me about uh, thinking through, can, can you protect yourself or family members um, getting a vaccine? And I think the answer is, is pretty unequivocally yes. You can reduce individual risk getting one of these new bivalent boosters. Or if you get sick, um, thinking about trying to prevent hospitalization by talking to a doctor and seeing if something like one of these uh, these new drugs like Paxlovid is appropriate for you, especially if you're older. Um, they've been shown to be very effective. Uh, and, and that kind of personal uh, choice question is, is still really important and, and reducing risk to others like members of your family who might be older. Uh, but like Elizabeth was saying, there's, there's something else going on here because even in, uh, even in groups like black Minnesotans, Hispanic Minnesotans, Asian Minnesotans that have much higher rates of vaccination in these periods compared to white Minnesotans, the COVID related mortality of midlife is higher. And so what that means to me is we have to also think about other social supports and other ways of reducing risk. And that might be things like uh, looking to um, increasing availability, availability of uh, personal protective equipment um, and, and why that didn't happen early on in the pandemic um, and other kinds of uh, available social supports, like even even like um providing child care and making sure that people can go to uh, work um, safely, uh, making sure they don't feel like they have to go to work if they are sick. And the question becomes, as COVID is here for the long run, um, what can we do as a society to support folks so that we don't have uh, COVID here every day, every week, and we just have to ask um, how do we how do we live with it, or how do we move on um, dealing with what we're dealing with now? Because otherwise, nothing is going to change compared to what we're seeing in the mortality data in the past year and a half to two years. It will stay the same unless something changes. So, Elizabeth, you you've been quoted as saying that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Is there something? But uh, is there something genetically that is making uh, maybe? Uh, uh, the vaccines not work as well in black people? Could it be that? No, we don't think it's that at all. Um, partly because there's almost no genetic differences between black and white populations. You know, we think there's there's really two kinds of things that could be going on here. And one is that all of the things that put people at risk of just contracting COVID in the first place, like having to share air with a lot of other people, like having to be at a workplace where people are coming in sick because there's no paid sick leave. Uh, all of those burdens tend to fall more heavily on people of color and especially on black people in the whole United States. Um, and that really matters. And so some of the things that JP was talking about, like paid sick leave is such an obvious 
but such an um, incredibly important thing to have if you don't want a respiratory disease to spread around your workplace. A chance for people um, to get well. So finally, uh, we're just about out of time, and this is just so fascinating. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Rickley-Field, a professor at the University of Minnesota, and also J.P. Leiter, a director of Center for Public Health Systems in the Public Schools, authors in the study. Can you tell us, with are we ever going to get out of the pandemic with Omicron just seeming to be a super type of virus that just keeps mutating no matter what you do. There are so many, we've run out of alphabets and numbers to keep up with how this virus is mutating. Will we see an end to this ever in our lifetime? COVID might be here to stay, but it's not necessary that that means that all the deaths are here to stay. That's still really in our control. It matters that people have good access to boosters. It matters that people have paid sick leave. It matters that we improve air quality at work and in schools. JP, you have the last word. I agree with Elizabeth. COVID's going to keep changing, but our response can keep changing to it as well. And when different flus show up or different new kinds of viruses, they can hit us hard and they can be incredibly scary. And in some ways, we got really unlucky with COVID, but in some ways, we got incredibly lucky. We got a vaccine that works incredibly well. We got several that reduce mortality uh, and hospitalization and those risks. And we have treatments that further reduce risks of hospitalization and death. And we're going to keep getting new ones. But we still have weekly death rates that are way worse than the worst weeks of flu. And if it's me, I don't want that for, you know, my neighborhood or my community. We have to do better. And the only way that we're going to do better is if something changes. So we we need to figure out how to support our communities better than we are right now. And That's going to be tough. Authors, thank you so much for being with us this morning and sharing your research on Minnesota. And thanks for sharing the data from your research. Thanks for having us. It's the weekend and New Beginnings is a weekly adventure. And I'm really excited that you join us. You can find me online at Freddie Bell on Twitter. Freddie Bell Radio Shows is how you can find us on Instagram. And of course, the website, FreddieBell.com. Let's have a little fun. In the United States, Florida is number one for this, and Delaware is number two. They're known for their flatness. Florida is the flattest state with an elevation of 345 feet, while Delaware is next with an elevation of 442. Many artists are releasing shorter songs as the incentives in the music industry change to favor streaming and short video apps. The percentage of top 10 hits that are less than three minutes long is up to 38% this year. That's up from just 4% in 2016. Artists want to minimize the skip rate as much as possible on streaming platforms because platforms with lower skip rates get priority on them and they also get paid by the song not the seconds so as a result the incentives are not to shy away from short songs here are four things that you probably didn't know yesterday domino's pizza was originally called dominic's like fingerprints everyone's tongue print is different yes your tongue print is different from everybody else's. The guy who wrote the hugely popular Chicken Soup for the Soul books was rejected by 123 publishers before landing a book deal. And it's a myth that all polar bears are left-handed. Research shows that both paws are equally used. 
And if you tend to reach for spicier foods, chances are you lead a spicier life. That's according to a new survey of adults who sought to reveal if there are any personality correlations between people who are spicy food enthusiasts. Spicy food eaters are more likely to enjoy trying new things. 76% consider themselves attractive. 62% and are more content with their lives. 66% than those with milder heat preferences. And this weekend marks the 30th anniversary of the first text message being sent. Neil Popworth, a 22-year-old test engineer for a company called Semigroup, sent the first text to a mobile phone on December 3, 1992, from his personal computer to the Vodafone network to the phone of Richard Jarvis. The message read, "Merry Christmas." And the multi-billion-dollar video game industry began 50 years ago this week with table tennis in black and white. The classic video game Pong was one of the first to reach mainstream popularity. It was released on November 29, 1972. It wasn't the first commercial coin-operated video game. That accolade belongs to Computer Space, but it was the first to really take off with the paying public spawning a host of imitators. And finally, here's some things that men don't know about their wives. Number one, her favorite song. Number two, the specific date that you met. Number three, her favorite clothing store. Number four, the brand. Number five, her shoe size, her allergies, her natural hair color. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? Uh. The things. <laughs> Just for fun, and I'm Freddie Bell. You're listening to New Beginnings. New Beginnings with Freddie Bell. The holiday season is here, and what better gift to give than the gift of positivity, enlightenment, and of course, good cheer? The ultimate holiday gift this year: Words to the Wise by Freddie Bell. Available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and FreddieBell.com. Ensure the special people on your holiday list are greeted each day with a positive, thoughtful, yet uplifting message. So this holiday season, give the gift you know they'll love. Words to the Wise by Freddie Bell. You're listening to New Beginnings. New Beginnings with Freddie Bell. Oh yeah, it's not too early because Santa has come to town. Everybody, please welcome to our morning program, Santa Pat. Good morning. Oh my goodness! I hear the jingle bells and everything.、Uh, are you in the Twin Cities yet, Santa? Not quite. Santa Pat is not due to arrive until December the thirteenth through the eighteenth. There with the Santa Experience Minnesota at the Mall of America. Oh my goodness! You know, Mall of America and the Santa Experience really introduced the world to Santas of color, starting with Santa Larry Jefferson and now Santa Patrick Moss. Where is home for you, sir? Well, home is in Houston, Texas. But if I can let you know, Freddie Bell, this is my second year appearing there with the family at the Family Experience in Minnesota. Wow! So, how have you been received? What are families saying when they bring their little ones and they、uh, come with you and they want to sit on your lap with with the list? Oh my! Well, it's such a joy whenever I visit with both young and old, and they are just as excited. 
that that little five year old with that twinkle in their eye. But most of them, perhaps, are impressed with my wardrobe. I've got a diversity of colors, and the children tease me and say, "Oh, I didn't know Santa wore different colors." So tell us about your your Santa wardrobe. Wow. Well, um. My fellow wardrobe is comprised of about five different suits, and part of that, of course, was to play on the colors of Christmas. At the same time, I just didn't want to be another guy in a red and white suit. So I came up with the idea, of course, to embrace uh, the black culture and enhance my suits with some African fabric that was shipped directly over from Ghana. Really? Absolutely. Wow. So what do the little tykes say when they see you for the first time? Oh, my. Well, I've got those that run up and want to jump in my arms. Some want to hug me. I've even had some present Santa with gifts. But they are full of joy and just as cheerful as they can be. Well, everybody, we're talking with Santa. Pat, he will be a part of the Santa experience at the Mall of America. How long will you be uh, sitting in the chair uh, talking to people who want to share their deepest secrets with you. I'll be there approximately six days. I start out on the 13th of December, and I sit every day up until that Sunday, the 18th. Do you have to make appointments to see you? Absolutely, and you can do that at www.thesantaexperiencemn.com. Now, there are Santas of all hues, shapes, and sizes. We have uh, Santas of color, black Santas, but I also understand there is a new Asian Santa that will be at the Mall of America as well. Correct. I believe that Santa Allen. I have yet to greet him, but I'm just as excited to see him, too. (laughs) This is so exciting. So what would you tell people? How can we get in contact with you? How can we make the appointment? Well, after you make the appointment, you can find me on social media, perhaps at Black Santa EFX, and that's across the board. But to find me with the Santa Experience in Minnesota and to schedule your appointment, you must log on to their website at www.thesantaexperiencemn.com. Everyone, we're talking with Santa Pat. What's been your greatest experience? Uh, as you've been uh, in your career. I know you've been in the military. You live in Houston, Texas. But tell us, what means the most to you? Well, if I could make a correction, it's Santa Larry that was a part of the military. However, my greatest accomplishment, perhaps, was creating this persona and building a brand so that I could spread joy to all, both near and far. Spreading joy to all. You know, I'm looking at your bio, and I said the certified Old Navy Santa ambassador, and I'm thinking, oh, he was in the Navy. (laughs) Well, that was actually just a simple training to um, classify me as an official Santa, and that happened last season. Oh, you have to be be certified. Well, I would presume so if you're a professional, and this year I'm certified with Santa Visits USA. My man. Do you have a final thought for our Twin Cities audience who can't wait for the snow to fall and to see the smile coming from Santa Pat? Well, we look forward to seeing you all, and I hope that you have a wonderful, safe, and prosperous holiday season. (laughs) I love that laugh. Thank you so much, Santa Pat. You're welcome, Freddie Bell. Ho, 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 and Merry Christmas to all. (laughs) 
and our never-ending effort to find valuable information and insight in all areas. It's time to bring in Cassie Crandall with this week's three things. Thanks, Freddie. All right, my thing number one this week. How was everyone's Thanksgiving? Mine was really awesome.、Uh, we have six kids, my husband and I, and we were fortunate enough to have two of them with us this year for Thanksgiving. So that was awesome. What did you eat? I know for me, pumpkin pie and stuffing are requirements, and I love all the other stuff too. But let me tell you, there's always got to be leftover stuffing and leftover pumpkin pie because we will munch on that for days after Thanksgiving. But it was a fun day watching football and playing games, watching a movie, and I hope y'all had a great Thanksgiving too. Now we're on to Christmas, and my thing number two. Have you been thinking about Christmas shopping? Have you been thinking about Christmas decorating? Or maybe you've already decorated because, well, in Minnesota, you got to pick the right date for your exterior decorating because it might be too cold to wait until December. So maybe you're already done, or maybe you're just not feeling it this year. Maybe you're not really in the spirit with inflation and all. I understand, but let me tell you. The simple gesture of putting up just a few little lights or a few little decorations—it makes me feel better, makes me feel good, it makes me feel hopeful, and I think that it's good for our neighbors to see that too. And it just makes me smile, makes me happy. I feel good about the season and optimistic about the future, and happy that others are in the Christmas spirit like I am. So while we're talking about Christmas, if you're feeling like、eh, I'm just not in the spirit this year, there are things you can do to feel a little bit better. There are lots of volunteer opportunities out there if you have the time. Food shelves, feed my starving children, and countless others. If you just do a search online, I'm sure you'll find something that would be a good fit for you. It's not like it has to be a lifelong commitment, but maybe just something to I don't know. Get you through the holiday time. You see, when we give back to others, we take the focus off of ourselves, and we're thinking about other people and their circumstances. And well, it's just a good thing all around. And if you already have been volunteering, thank you. Lastly, my thing number three this week. It's a quote. Surprise, surprise. You must tell yourself. No matter how hard it is or how hard it gets, I'm going to make it. And let me tell you, there's a lot of truth behind that. The things we tell ourselves, the positive messages we give ourselves—if we're not getting them from others, we need to give them to ourselves—gets us through. And you'll make it through whatever you're going through right now, good or bad or indifferent. Just tell yourself. You're gonna make it, and as my husband likes to say, when you're going through hell, keep on going. For new beginnings, I'm Cassie Crandall. Thanks so much, Cassie. We'll talk to you again next week.
You're listening to The Right Show. It's New Beginnings. I'm Freddie Bell, and today is National Roof Over Your Head Day. It was created as a day to be thankful for what you have, starting with the roof over your head. There are many things that we have that we take for granted, and we don't stop to appreciate how fortunate we are for having them. All across our nation, there are many that do not have the things that are necessary to everyday life. They may lack a roof over their heads, enough food to eat, or clothes to wear. For those who have those bare necessities, it may be insufficient. The day reminds us to appreciate what we have. This day also follows closely after Thanksgiving, a day to be thankful. So just like Thanksgiving, be thankful for what you do have, and always remember that it is a better feeling than worrying about what you don't have. And here are today's words to the wise. As I give, I receive. Today's words to the wise. As I give, I receive. You can find this and more words to the wise in my brand new book entitled, of course, Words to the Wise. I'm Freddie Bell, and we'll be back with more. The holiday season is here, and what better gift to give than the gift of positivity, enlightenment, and of course, good cheer. The ultimate holiday gift this year? Words to the Wise by Freddie Bell. Available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and FreddieBell.com. Ensure the special people on your holiday list are greeted each day with a positive, thoughtful, yet uplifting message. So this holiday season, give the gift you know they'll love. Words to the Wise by Freddie Bell. This is a news-oriented broadcast, and all information is educational in nature is not intended to be legal, securities, tax, or insurance advice. Please consult with the appropriate professional before acting on information heard during the broadcast. You're listening to New Beginnings. New Beginnings with Freddie Bell. Now let's turn our attention to financial health and retirement with Libel Sternbach, Amazon's best-selling author of Living with Financial Anxiety and Authenticity. He is a great man. I enjoy talking with you, Libel. Hello and welcome back to New Beginnings. Hey, how are you doing? Unbelievable. Glad you're with us. And I know that we we get a lot of response to your programs. And this week we want to talk about the 4% rule. And quite honestly, Libel, I have no idea what the 4% rule is. Can you help me? Well, you're not alone because it seems like even the people who seem to think that they know what the 4% rule is, um, once they start talking, you kind of realize that everyone has a different impression of what the 4% rule is. And when you start actually digging into it, you discover that it isn't quite what anybody thinks it is. So let's talk about what, you know, when people think about the 4% rule, Uh, We'll talk about what that is, and then we'll dive into the details. With a 4% rule, right, in in colloquial speak, right, what we like think about, what the media talks about when you say 4%, it's, oh, I can retire, and if I only took 4% of my portfolio every single year, I would never run out of money in retirement. That is the idea that people have in their mind. Now, where this came from, right, where did this idea come from that there's some magical number that if you only took that much from your portfolio and no more, you wouldn't run out of money in retirement? That's a, you know, that's a separate question. And we'll talk about that. But that that is, you know, people have latched onto that from different studies. And when you start diving into it, you might start to question whether it's something you actually want to uh, rely on. Interesting, everybody. We're talking with Libel Sternbach this on this particular episode of Libel on Fire, and I just asked about the 4% rule. So 
Why is that important? You said this is the, a, a way of structuring our money and retirement. Why is that important to someone right now who says, I think I've got enough money to retire on which we can retire? Well, the basis of the decision of how much money do you actually need to retire, right? How do you answer that question? Um, a lot of people turn to these things like the 4% rule to try to gauge and you know have a crystal ball of the future. Because that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to look into the future and predict what's going to happen next, right? And we both know, right, you can't predict the future. So then we start looking in the past and we go, okay, well, historically things have happened. So if historically things continue to happen like they have, and the future is like the past, then therefore this would be a safe number, right? And now we're starting to read into, into the tea leaves. And so if you don't even know what the assumptions are behind the tea leaves that you're reading, you're then be- before you know it, right, you're, who knows what you're building on. Interesting. Okay, so that's the 4% rule. Uh, I'm just going to ask it this way. What other rule is out there that most of our listeners, including me, don't know what is? So when we think about the 4% rule, right, another another way of phrasing that is you've probably heard, you know, uh, save 25 to 30 times your annual expenses, right? That you should have, a, that your retirement number, that the amount that you should have saved should be 25 to 30 times what you spend in a year. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, 25 times, right? So if you took one and you divide by four, it becomes 25. Ah. Uh Yeah. So the 25 X rule, right, of 25 years or 30 years is essentially saying the 4% rule, right? It's a mirror image of that, um, but it's for different reasons. Um, And that's kind of where people come up with this number of how much money should you have saved up for retirement. It's based on this 4% concept that if you somehow took out only 4% a year, that you would be okay, right? And it's, you know, is it based on something? Well, let's talk about that. But that that is what it's based on. It's based on this idea that if you somehow only took 4% a year, you would never run out of money in retirement. And let's just, you know, between the two of us, let's be honest, right? Realistically speaking, there's a lot of people who may not even have that much money in savings, Right. They might not have 25 times their annual expenses saved. So are we telling all of these people that they can't retire? Right. And if we're telling these people that they can't retire, right. Well, reality has a different outlook. Right. Reality is, well, these people can't work anymore or they they're not getting a job anymore. They get fired. Right. Or they're forced into retirement. Mm-hmm. What now? Right. So there's this whole world of people who just, you know, they got to 65 or they got to 70 or whatever that year was, or they had an injury at work and it forced them to retire, and they don't have 25 times their annual expenses saved. They don't have, you know, enough that they can take out 4% every year and be okay. So are we telling these people they're not safe, that they're going to run out of money in retirement? Um, And I think when we start diving into, you know, what where the 4% rule came from and you start looking into it, you might question and say, well, okay, maybe I don't actually need that much money saved in retirement. Maybe I can take out more than 4% and still be okay. So what do you tell your customers, the people who come to you looking for information? Do you do you live by that 4% or the 25% rule, sir? I do not live by it. I think that as a rule of thumb, right, if you are, if you're trying to gauge whether you have enough money for retirement, 
I think that that's like a good rule of thumb that we can say like, you know, yes or no. Like if we only took 4% out of our portfolio, out of our life savings, and that covered our expense needs in retirement, then we are doing awesome, right? Because I, we can definitely create a retirement plan around 4%. If you, if 4% is not enough, right? And you still have a shortfall. I don't think that you should at that point give up and say, well, I have to work longer or I have to cut my expenses. I think it just means you got to be a little more creative in how you structure your retirement, because that just means that this rule of thumb doesn't apply to you and you're going to need to use other factors to fund your retirement. Very interesting. That's Libel Sternbach we're talking with today on Libel on Fire. There was an article that was written not long ago, Retirement Spending, Choosing a Suitable Withdrawal Rate by Three Individuals, Philip Cooley, Carl Hubbard, and Daniel Waltz, and they nicknamed it the Trinity Study. Can you tell us the, the thrust behind it and why it's important to us? Yeah, so the Trinity study, which everyone kind of like looks to and calls, you know, the 4% rule or the Trinity, you know, the Trinity study, which was, you know, Trinity University, which is where these professors were, actually came on the backs of another study that was done by a retired financial advisor, uh, John Began, um, if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, and he's, you know, both them and the people who created that Trinity study have come out multiple times over the years, updating their rule. Um, but let's let, let's talk, take a look at the fundamentals, right? Both Bagan and the Trinity guys, right? What they looked at was they said, let's start with the question of how much how, how how can we structure a portfolio so that someone would not run out of retirement money during retirement, right? So that they would not deplete all of their savings by the time that they died. Mm-hmm. That was the question that they asked themselves right now. They said, OK, how are we going to structure this? They this was, you know, 1998 was the first study that was done by the Trinity University. Right. These guys. So they went back historically and they looked 1925 to 1995 and they looked at different periods of the stock market and the bond market. And then they looked at the returns and they were like, OK, what percentage could we take out of a portfolio over a 15-year period or 25-year period that if we took that percentage would consistently allow the person retiring to still have money when they died at the end of that 15 or 25-year period? Mm-hmm. Okay, now, I just want to point something out, right? It is a very admirable undertaking, right, that they look to the historical data, right, to see, okay, what does history tell us? But let's look at some of the assumptions of this study, okay? Assumption number one is that the past is going to look like the future, right? We Starting in 1925 to 1995, right? Let's talk about all the changes that underwent the world, right? We're, we're talking about, you know, coming off of World War One, right? World War Two, right? Um, we have, we have Cold War. We have the space race. We have hyperinflation, right? Of the seventies. We had the Soviet Union in 87, right? Defaulting on so- their sovereign debt for the first time, collapse of the Soviet Union, right? And then we have the dot com boom. So this was literally in the height of the dot com boom was where the study ended. Um, in the first study in 1995. During that period also, by the way, right? We went off the gold standard. So in 1925, a dollar was worth a dollar of gold. You can go and exchange that dollar bill for a dollar of physical gold that you can buy things with. By, you know, 1970, you couldn't do that anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And that completely, that's part of what drove inflation. And that completely changed economics. We had globalization. We have technology, right? The world did not look the same. The stock market did not look the same. 1925, you wanted to buy stocks, you literally went down to Wall Street. But nowadays, right, you want to buy a stock, you go online on Robinhood, and you can have that within a few seconds. So with that, we're talking about the 4% rule. What validity does it still have for us today, Libel? So I, I think that it still has a certain, I think the premise, the premise was, let's look at what the historical returns of the market were and project, pro, project that to the future, right? And we have to understand, right? We, we really have to recognize that finance, finance as a discipline, as an industry, as a skill set is very new. Right. Stock markets only came into existence in the 1700s. And for the most part, most of what we consider to be, you know, modern portfolio theory and what we base all of our decisions on came about in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. So the fact that, you know, the Trinity study came along and they said, Hey, let's stop guessing at how much money someone should take out of their portfolio. And let's do that based on facts and logic and historical you know, projections of the future. I think that that concept that you should, that you should look to the past and then say, you know, based on what I can expect the future to look like, let's use some statistical analysis to say what we can take out, right? I think that was the innovation that they did, that they introduced to the finance world. Like, hey, don't just guess at this. Do, you know, some analysis. Um, but beyond that, the numbers change. They literally change, you know, every few years because the stock market, depending on whether we're in a bear market or a bull market, will determine what the future expectations are for the return on the market. Now, over a long enough period, yeah, those numbers will kind of even out. But I, I mean, I think everyone will agree that the bond market has changed significantly from 1925 to 1995 or even to, you know, 2015 um, or 2022, right? Exactly. And what's going to happen in the future, right? It's not going to mimic what happened in the last 20 or 40 or 50 years. Um, And when you're retiring, what matters is the next five to 10 years, not the next, you know, 30 to 40 years. That makes a lot of sense. We got to leave it right there. But if we'd like to get more information, I know that a great resource is yields4u.com, yields, the number four, the letter U. Is there another paper or any other resource that you would recommend before we have to step away for a few seconds? Um, On the website, we've got that resources tab. We also have a whole bunch of classes that you can go through. Um, So the workshops on these specific topics where you can go through and get a more in-depth understanding of how it applies to your retirement. Thank you, Libel. We look forward to hearing from you again next week. Libel's website is libelonfire.com. That's libelonfire.com. And more New Beginnings is straight ahead. You're listening to New Beginnings. New Beginnings with Freddie Bell. The holiday season is here, and what better gift to give than the gift of positivity, enlightenment, and of course, good cheer. The ultimate holiday gift this year? Words to the Wise by Freddie Bell. Available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and FreddieBell.com. Ensure the special people on your holiday list are greeted each day with a positive, thoughtful, yet uplifting message. So this holiday season, give the gift you know they'll love. Words to the Wise by Freddie Bell. 
It's now time to welcome the Reverend James Stacy at Unity South Twin Cities. They have two services each week at 9 a.m. and at 10.30. The first is interactive and the second service a more traditional service. We now join the Reverend James Stacy as he begins a lesson entitled Unity, the Wonder Drug. We join that service already in progress. The Wonder Drug. There's so much talk in the media and the world about drugs and the detrimental effects. Then on the other hand, we have all of the miracle stories about the healings that have taken effect by helpful prescriptive drugs and other forms of cure. But this wonder drug that I've been talking about is very simply the activity of helping others and creating an other focus that is being able to shift, much like Holly's song just did, to shift our attention from our own beating heart to the beating heart in all people, becoming aware of the other, of others, and being able to create a focus in mind that sees others. Considerable scientific research is outlined in the recent book that I've been working with, The Wonder Drug, by Drs. Stephen Rezevciak and Anthony Mazzarelli. Let's look at their prescription for the seven steps we can take now. Now, we're going to have to take a fast jet ride through these seven steps due to the time we have to be together. But I have written in your bulletin insert that you'll find where my bulletin went, but the insert on one side, it speaks of our current food drive for Veep down in the lobby, and on the other side, it has these seven steps to take now. The first step is to start small. Don't you love it? Start small. The authors emphasize serving others, being altruistic, creating an other focus does not mean giving up your current job. It does not mean selling your house and living out of your car so that you can put all of your assets toward helping others. That much of the benefit of which they speak benefits to our physical well-being, our mental well-being, our sense of purpose, our joy and happiness in life, can all be achieved through simple, small steps we can make on a daily basis to help others, to support others, to share life with others. Adam Grant talks about the 100-hour rule That's the number of hours per year one needs to devote to altruism to get benefits to one's health and well-being. That threshold holds up in scientific research that has been conducted in Japan, Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. In a longitudinal study, that means where they follow the persistence 
participants for a considerable period of time. In a longitudinal study of 13,000 U.S. adults, it was at least 100 hours a year of volunteering that was linked with a reduced risk of death, physical functioning limitations, and also created higher physical activity, positive affect or emotion, optimism, purpose in life, and then decreased depression and loneliness. The authors of our book suggest not to do 100 hours in one week, but to divide it over the year, just as you wouldn't take a medication for the year all at once on one day. And if you divide that 100 hours a year over the course of the days of the year, it's only 16 minutes per day that you can devote towards serving others. That's a reasonable dose indeed. And there is support for the effectiveness of small doses of helpfulness. Research from the University of Oxford indicates that just a seven-day routine of small acts of kindness can actually boost happiness in measurable ways. So if you stick with it just for seven days, happiness may kick in for you by the end of the week. That's a pretty fast result. The second step in our prescription is to be thankful. Well, I think we know that already, and we know that truth already in unity. Our longtime friend Loretta Taggart, whose life we celebrated yesterday, placed a strong emphasis on the power of gratitude. This book, The Wonder Drug, attempts to review scientific evidence for the power of gratitude to create measurable benefits in the grateful individual. Authentic Happiness author Martin Seligman came up with a practice called Gratitude Visits. Gratitude Visits. Think of someone from your past for whom you didn't quite express sufficient gratitude way back when, and then pay them a visit to express it fully now. Seligman has found in his research that it increases happiness and well-being for both the giver and the receiver of the gratitude. Now, if you think it might be embarrassing for you and others to, excuse me, if you think it might be embarrassing for you and the other, consider this research from the University of Chicago. Participants were asked to write a gratitude letter and also predict how surprised, happy, or awkward the receiver would feel. Researchers then checked in with the recipients to see how they actually felt. The results were that the letter writers underestimated the surprise and happiness it would bring to the receivers and way overestimated any awkwardness or embarrassment the receivers might feel. 
In fact, the typical receiver in the study felt no awkwardness or embarrassment at all. Your prescription, step two, is to write at least one sincere thank you note or email per week and send it to someone who really deserves it. Now we're ready for step three. Be be purposeful. Purposeful. Australian psychologist Viktor Frankl wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, about his experience in the Nazi concentration camps. He found, from his own observation, that the prisoners who broke down and died most quickly had few commitments in their lives outside of those concentration camps. The ones who survived had something to live for, a commitment, a purpose, outside the camps that gave them the strength to keep going. You just heard a message coming from the Reverend James Stacy, the Senior Minister of Unity South in the Twin Cities. More information is found at their website at unitysouth.org. Thank you for joining us this week on New Beginnings. You can follow me on Instagram, Freddie Bell Radio. Send me a tweet at Freddie Bell, and you can also join us right here on your favorite radio station. It's time now for It Happened This Week. In 1859, author Washington Irving died at the age of 76. Who is he? Well, he penned such classics such as Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. In 1939, Dr. James Naismith died at the age of 78. He is credited with inventing the game of bad. Basketball, his statue, and the original rules can be found at the University of Kansas. In 1994, the convicted serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in a Wisconsin prison by a fellow inmate. There's also a Netflix series featuring his life. You might remember in 2008, the Black Friday sales rush turned tragic in New York when a seasonal employee was trampled to death by eager shoppers at a Walmart store. The stampede left four others injured, including a pregnant woman. In an incident in Southern California, a shooting at a toy store in Palm Desert left two people dead there. In 2010, airplane and naked gun actor Leslie Nielsen died at the age of 84. In 1971, the television movie Brian Song aired on ABC. The story was based on the relationship between Chicago Bears running back Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo, who eventually died of cancer. In 1979, the comedian actor Herbert Zepp Paul Marx died at the age of 78. Funny man, he was a member of the famous Marx Brothers comedy team. In 1994, two passengers were killed after the cruise ship Achille Laro caught fire off the coast of Somalia. Nearly 1,000 passengers and crew members were forced to abandon ship. The Achille Laro sank two days later. In 1996, ukulele playing novelty singer Tiny Tim passed away of a heart attack. He was most famous for his song, Tiptoe through the tulips. And finally, in 2013, Fast and Furious franchise star Paul Walker and a friend were killed in a single-car accident in Santa Clarita, California. Walker was attending a charity event at the time of the incident. It happened this week, and I'm Freddie Bell. 
That's our show, and thanks to our special guests for stopping by, sharing information that can help to change a life. If you've missed any of our program today, you can subscribe to our podcast or just Google Freddie Bell or stop by my website of the same name. Thanks for listening, and remember that each day is a chance for a new beginning. See you next week.